Pete Giuliano, it is Saturday the 28th of January 2017, and that makes this solder smoke. What's the number, Pete? 193! 193, excellent. You're sitting there, you got a DX engineering hat on. What's the story there, Pete? Oh, this is a really interesting story, and, and there's a reason why I wore this. Uh, in Southern California here, actually, we've been having a lot of rain. As a matter of fact, they're sort of declaring the drought over because of the amount of rain that we've had. And uh, <clears throat> my wife uh, is not in the best of health, so a week doesn't go by that we don't have some sort of medical appointment. You know, got to go down there to UCLA, Thousand Oaks, and uh, you know the drill. I think I have a... Uh, Button on my dashboard of my car, it says UCLA. I push it, and the autopilot takes over and <laughs> drives us there. there you go. So this past Monday, uh, we went, and it was really raining. And I was going to wear my beret, but I said, you know, that's going to get really soggy wet, and there's nothing worse than a soggy wet wool beret. So I said, I'm going to I want to use a ball cap here. So I grabbed the, the DX Engineering ball cap that Bill's, Bill's referring to and uh, had that on. And... Uh, we walked into the uh, medical suite there, and uh, there's a, a male medical assistant that we've dealt with in the past. His name is Michael. And we said hello, and I had my hat on. And so we went into the examining room, and he looked at me and said, Are you a ham? <laughs> I said, Yeah. <laughs> he said, I see your DX engineering cap on. I said, Oh, yeah. He said, I'm going to take my journal test. Here in a couple of weeks, <laughs> I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, I'm really excited about taking the general, getting on the air. He said, my uncle's a ham. And he said, you know, he's always been after me. He said, now nah, I'm finally going to do it. And he said, but I don't know what kind of rig I'm going to buy. And you said, you said, you said, buy a soldering iron instead. <laughs> well, I said, you know, um, while he was taking her blood pressure and I said, give me a piece of paper. And so I wrote down my uh, website and the blog, and I, I said, about, "I thought you were going to say you drew a schematic of a BX twenty, uh, of a BX twenty. No, no, no. I said, but go to this website and click on this link, and there's a fifty nine dollar radio. <clears throat> That's yeah. really excellent to get started with. Not a lot of cash outlay. I said it's pretty much assembled. I said, and it's working out of the box, but you have to put it in the case." So you'll get some experience, and I said also on my blog, on my website is a tutorial. It tells you what you need to do, how do you take this rig and get installed. There's also a users group. I told him about the Yahoo users group, and he really seemed excited. I mean, he had a gleam in his eye. There you go. <laughs> all right. All, it's all because it was raining out, <laughs> and, and I had my who DX knows an entire you know you, you never know how this is going to affect you somebody's never. life. Yeah, you never know. So he was just really excited. And I'm sure that by the time we have the next appointment, matter of fact, uh, well, that's too soon. It's next, next Wednesday. But I'm sure we'll see Michael again because we see him all the time. Yeah, it was kind of, uh, kind of exciting just to see someone. And I, I didn't press him. I, I guess I, I was so excited and tried to provide him information. I'll say, you know, what finally tipped you over? I mean, to have your uncle be a ham, say, hey, become a ham, become a ham. And then all of a sudden, some event that says, okay, I'm really going to do it. So really, really exciting. Yeah. yeah. That's you know, why I got the ball cap on, so I can remember. But I want to point out, Pete, you, he, I'm, I'm looking at Pete in the video here. He's got a, no, not only the ball cap, but he's got gloves on. Yes. He is suffering out there in La La Land. It is cold yes. in California. <laughs> yes. But there's another reason why I have these gloves. Okay. Tell, tell me, Pete. 
I, I was I was telling my daughter. I said, you know, I said I'm going to have to get some gloves and maybe cut the fingers out. I said because it's kind of hard to operate the computer with with the with the gloves. She said, I have a solution for you. She spotted these gloves. They got special pads on the tips <laughs> that you can actually. Well, this brings up a topic. I'm glad yeah. you mentioned this because I, I think I mentioned last time I've been watching this. In the rare occasion that I watch TV, I watch the Velocity Channel, and they have these shows about guys who work on cars. And there's this one show that I like. It's two British guys, Wheeler Dealers. And they have this one master mechanic who goes in there and can fix everything. But the weird thing is, whenever he's working on, on cars, even if he's working on small screws and stuff, he's got these rubber, like orange rubber gloves on. And it must be that, I'm thinking, it must be that they've done something with the materials to allow for dexterity, because I can't imagine working on the radio gear with these kind of gloves on, but watching this guy operate, I'm thinking that maybe there may be something out yeah. there that, that we could yeah. use. So if anybody knows about this, please send us an email and let us know. And because I'm sure let your hands like mine. I, I mean, I've got soldering iron burns and nicks and cuts yeah. <laughs> going back to 1973. And uh, who knows? Maybe we could put an end to this uh, this, this this suffering. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm just I'm running a test here to see All if right. I can operate well, so, this the mouse and that with the, with so the, far, with so the good. Oh, they're getting a little think, warm right think, now. I don't think you're going to be working on any SI 5351s. <laughs> No, 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 no. They look like he's got mittens on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, hey, that you, your story about Michael brings us to the first topic on today's agenda, report from your BIDX40 session with the radio yes. club. How did that go? It went really well. Um, <clears throat> just to bring um, people up to speed through a chain of events uh, through my friend Ben, KK6FUT, who's actually been spending a lot of time with various radio clubs in in the area talking to them about homebrewing, he, uh, he talked to the Ventura County Amateur Radio Club, VCARC, and uh, they had uh, a little more detailed questions. He said, you know, you really need to talk to Pete. He said, you ought to get uh, Pete to come here and, and uh, share with you some things. And so they, uh, they did contact me, and I said, you know, maybe the best way to talk about this is to discuss the BIDX40. So the thrust to the Skype presentation was all about the BIDX40. As a matter of fact, I created the series of web pages on my website specifically for this club to get you started. I mean, it takes you right from the basics. And I, I think I shared with you in the past, Bill, that this club is two groups of people, one that have the ICOM 7300 and the other part that has the Baofeng $35 VHF UHF with nothing in between. You know, So there was some interest in maybe – taking their club one step further as a club project. And uh, so I made the presentation, and four people showed up with their BIDX kits <laughs> at, wow. the, at the club in the box. I mean, wow. it wasn't built. It wasn't built. It was, a, yeah, I got them. my – they had them. They had them in their hands. And so they said, you know, we're really interested in hearing what you have to say because – how do I now take this and translate it into into a radio, into a box? And I, I said, look, into an the ICOM seventy three hundred. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I said uh, the thing that's interesting, and I, I made that point too here, and, and I'll cover that in a second. I said the radio works right out of the box. I said the only thing that you need to do is put it in a suitable enclosure. And I said we've made a couple of recommendations on enclosures. As a matter of fact, the club president, he actually has one built. 
and he has it in one of the enclosures, and he had it there so they could see what he did. And I said, the thing is, is uh, the kit is now being sold, comes with a display. I said, at the time I bought mine, it was just the, the board, and there was it was a Varactor tuning. And I said, I, I immediately bypassed that and put, put uh, AD9850 in, in an LCD. I said, but now this comes. Matter of fact, the guy... One of the guys, and they put the, they put the camera over, and then he pulls out his box. He had the display module, and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, here it is." You know, well, so he was with, it's a display with an SI fifty three fifty one. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the whole, whole the whole module right there. Right. So he's here it is. So everybody could you know see what I was talking about. So it went over very well. There were some really good questions, and uh, I, I think the thing is, is the next step is those four or five people need to get their their radios built. Right. And I said, once they get them built, then the others will see, hey, and then they can share with them. I, mean, I can sit there and tell them, hey, it's a piece of cake, no, not a problem. But when they have fellow club members that they have a calibration on that can share what they've done, then it, it's so much more meaningful. Yeah. And go back to your 7300. I said, you know, you put this on the air. This is not a Nikon 7300, but you can talk to 7300s and they'll never know. That's right. They'll never know that they'll they'll just say, "Oh yeah, you know, you sound really good." And I said, "Don't be uh don't be deceived by the uh well, it depends on your voltage, but uh if you put a 12 volt gel cell, you'll probably see about 5 watts. You put 13.8 volts on it, you'll probably see a little bit more." I said, "But with uh and I shared with them that I've had contacts uh up to northern California, out to Arizona, Utah, um uh see Nevada, I yeah. said, and that's all. That's all running barefoot. Yeah. So I said, uh, you know, you you can make lots of useful contacts. And I said that's why I think it was a really great idea, forty meters, because that that wattage and that four or five hundred miles, lots of contacts, lots of people to talk to. So uh, there were some good questions, and uh, I've had some follow up from uh, the club president. So uh, I need to uh, probably pulse him and. Ask uh, how he's coming on his bill because he he at the time he bought the kit the the add-on was not available and he's since bought one and he uh, at the club meeting he did share that his was in route to him and so he'd be uh, be receiving it so maybe he's got it installed in his radio and uh, I'll need to find out on it but but very positive and I think that's another aspect of the BitX40 uh, especially with a club is the the Cost of entry is fifty nine dollars shipped to your door, you know, and you got a you got a complete rig. You got you need to put a few more bucks into it in terms of an enclosure or whatever you want to do to customize it, but it's certainly a, a low entry cost, and you have a usable radio at the end of the trail. That's it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a fantastic thing, and and it, I'm really glad you got out there and got a good response. I was kind of I was kind of uh, worried about it a little bit. I was thought I thought you would get out there and run into a lot of kind of. Uh, you know, um, appliance operator kind of um, uh, resistance, and but no, it sounds like they were very open to it, and they, they're getting the point. That's it. Here was the thing that really blew my mind. They started off the meeting by going around the room, and they said, "How about introducing yourself?" And you know, uh, Tom Smith, Mary Jones, etc. So then they came to these people, and the guy said, "I just got my license, and this is the first club meeting." There were five of those people wow. <laughs> that just got their license, 
And there were four people said, we're not licensed yet, but we're sure serious about it. We figure we get with the club. There were nine people there. That's good. <laughs> and and there, there might have been 40 people total, and nine of those were either brand-new hams or about to get licensed. So, I, I mean, I was really encouraged. I said, wow. <laughs> you know, one or two, I'd say, hey, that's really great, but nine. Well, they're lucky to run into you so early on because I think a lot of the folks who get started with those Baofeng $35 transceivers don't last too long because they get bored with it because it, it yes. is really kind of boring it's it's you know it's hard to see the difference between that and the cell phone and uh and well the bit x40 is certainly quite different well here's a little postscript to that the club has a repeater but because of all the rains it water got into the kodak coax so the repeater is off the air so all those guys with the bail fangs <laughs> they can't talk to anybody <laughs> oh no yeah. Well, time to build some BitX 40s. Yeah, yeah, there you which, go. Which brings us to the next item on our agenda, which is update on the BitX 40 module revolution worldwide. We've just had the report from Los Angeles area, but now worldwide, a lot of stuff going on with the BitX 40. I think the, the, the revolution that Farhan launched, as, as you just des described, I mean, in one small club meeting, got four guys walk in with these boxes in their hands. Holy yeah. cow, the Wizard of Hyderabad is having an impact worldwide um yep. a couple of things i'd like to mention on this uh, farhan launched a uh, a page to sort of collect the, the the hacks the suggestions for changes that could be made to the bitx 40 it's called bitx 40 it's called bitx hacks and it's easy to find and you and i have been authorized to post stuff to it i think other people if they asked farhan he'd, he'd let them too but we've been putting up a bunch of stuff in there and, and uh, a fellow uh, nd6t don cantrell came up with a whole series of really good hacks, well-described, well-illustrated, and I put them all up there. So if you're in the BitX, into the BitX40, or not, if you're just looking for ideas for homebrew projects, check out this blog page. Again, it's BitXHacks, all one word, uh, .com, and you'll, you'll, get, you'll get to it. There's all kinds of uh, good ideas there. The BitX20 mailing list, very active. I mean, it's, it says BitX20, but it's, it's the whole BitX world, and that's the the place where most of the online discussion of the BitX40 is taking place. And it's really interesting because you're seeing in those posts a lot of discussion of kind of, and it's a good mix of guys who are more advanced home brewers and guys who are brand new. Guys who have experience in the digital area but don't have experience with RF. And it's really, I mean, we, you get a chuckle sometimes, some of the ideas that come up. So, for example, <laughs> you and I were laughing about this one. One guy, they were talking about how to how to take care of the heat on the IRF 510, and how to mount. Oh the, yeah. And how to mount the, the heat sink. <laughs> yeah. And right. One guy out there, very sincerely, and I guess it's a it's an understandable thing, said, "Well, he's figured out how to do it, because, and what he's going to do is he's going to remote the IRF 510. Remote it. That means, I mean, he's got the box there with the with the, with all the BitX circuitry." And a whole bunch of long lines running out to a different box, you know, one line to the collector, one guy to the line to the base, one line to the emitter, and have that one over there, you know, with a, with a big heat sink and a fan on it. And I just, I just, I, I almost, I felt myself grimace <laughs> because, man, that thing's going to turn into a big five watt oscillator. But these kind of things, I mean, and it's good you discuss it. It's all very friendly. And I mean, the guy might not have thought of that. And we said, eh, you know, you got to keep the lead length short in, in that area. That's why Farhan's design is so stable but it's really i think it's very encouraging that we're seeing so many people 
who are really looking at how they're going to improve their rig, how they're going to, you know, modify it, how they're going to get it on other bands. Um, the uh, the response to the the response to the drifty uh, Veractor tuned VFO, I think, is actually quite good because I mean it was it, instead of I mean if you if you if you're buying that ICOM that eight thousand dollar ICOM and there's some shortcoming in it or some problem or something that you don't like, people immediately are whipping out their warranty and they're putting it in a box and they're sending it back wherever it came from, but with the BidX. No, no, that's not going to happen. If there's something that you don't like about it, the solution is figure out a technical solution to change it, to make it better, to put it, to make it the way you want it. And I think that was the the, the whole idea behind Farhan launching this kind of counterintuitive project. You wouldn't, you really wouldn't think that the way to get guys to do more home brewing and more technical work is to provide them with a rig that's already built. But it really works here because I, I was thinking about this too. The money factor is important. If some guy has the rig on his table is a five or six thousand dollar transceiver, he's scared of touching that thing. He's not going to open that thing up. <laughs> yeah, no way. Yeah, yeah. If it's forty-five or fifty-nine dollars, and it's it's there and it came without a box, and you put it in the box, you've already had your hands on it. I mean, even if you completely mess the thing up, just send for another one. It's not going to break the bank. So I think it's 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 really pretty cool, and then Raduino, <laughs> the what you mentioned before, you know, there was I think so many guys really are into kind of uh, glowing numerals and and digital VFO and rock stable. I'm looking at one of them right now. He's got a DX engineering hat on, um, and and Farhan was very responsive. He came out and he came out with a kind of a digital add-on that you could put in there. For those people who are really, really bothered by that, you know, 20 hertz shift in the in the Veractor VFO and want to have glowing numerals, so there it is. And you could, you know, with that with that additional feature there, you can have digital stability and yeah, and there's all kinds of things that you could do with that. So that's that's really pretty cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then you know, I, I want to recommend something. I came across Farhan did an interview with W5KUB. He has kind of a video cast uh, program. And, and and it was a lengthy interview, and W5KUB was really lucky to get Farhan to, to go in there and talk. Take a look at it. I have a, I have the link to the to the uh, interview on the Solder Smoke blog page, but it's really interesting. I mean, there's a couple points where the audio gets kind of choppy, but hang in there because it's worth it. it. It does get straightened out, and Farhan provides a lot of description of his thought process behind this whole project, behind the BIDX, with the origins of the BIDX. How they get the parts for the BIDX, that's, that's interesting too. They're using coils from WADIZ, the Toroid King. Um, how they get people to put it together, how the, the women's collective is all a part of that. They have this one lady, Uma. Uma. <laughs> who is the, uh, the, the crystal, crystal sorter, sorter, right? She, yeah. she sorts a thousand crystals a day. And that, those are the crystals that go into the filter and the, and the, uh, and the BFO. Uh, there's there's a lot of really kind of charming detail in behind the BIDX40. It's not this kind of just cold piece of gear with no history or no people behind it. So it's it's really interesting to see that. It's you know anytime you launch a project like this, as you know, Pete Giuliano, you will get hit with a certain amount of what I call whining and trolling. All right, there are people out there who feel that every good deed has to be responded to with a nasty comment 
or an insinuation. A lot. It, look, they're just trolling. They're trolls. They just want to kind of stir up a response and make people mad. It, it's sad. But anyway, he got one from some guy who was accusing him of making big bucks on the Ponzi production. scheme. <laughs> Ponzi scheme. Yeah, there you a, a go. Get rich quick scheme, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> making a killing on Bidex 40 modules <laughs> at the expense of the ham radio community. Oh, and then he was apparently also unhappy with the the the, the, the boxes that they used to ship it. Oh, it was it was really ridiculous, but it was, you know, we have this, you know, every dark cloud is a silver lining, and the silver lining was that Varhan came back with this very calm very reasoned, very gentlemanly response. But in the response, he gave a description of what it's like to build and produce and, and mail something like this from Hyderabad, India, which I found really interesting. And so there was a kind of a, a discussion of the kind of the finances, logistics, the, the, the parts procurement part of the whole project. I have that up on the, uh, the Solder Smoke blog, so you guys might want to take a, take a look at that too. In addition to your story from from L.A., I mean, the, the videos that are coming in from around the world are really a, a reminder of the, the global reach of this project. And Peter Parker, VK3YE, the wizard of Melbourne Beach, sent in this amazing video. He has a BitX40 on his beach, and he's talking to another VK ham, I think in the Sydney area, uh, who's also on a beach. Both of them are running BitX40s. Both of them are running it with a kind of a modification that Peter recommended where they use ceramic resonators, switchable ceramic resonators uh, from the front panel. Uh, it, and it's apparently good for the 40 meter phone band in Australia. And you get videos from both ends. You get vid P Peter shooting a video from his beach. The other guy's shooting a video from his beach. And it, it's really, really cool to see two bit X 40s, you know, in Australia working beach to beach. So, so thanks for that. Either. But I mean, it's it's an amazing project. Well, let me um, interject one point here that I made at the uh, the meeting because uh, I think this is an important uh, issue that you just illustrated with that uh, contact. Uh, the the VCARC also has a mission for emergency preparedness and emergency communications. I said, guys, fifty nine bucks will provide you an emergency radio. Yeah. <laughs> I said on the 40-meter band, and I said, those bail fangs, when those cell tires go down and, and, and all things go down, you have a radio that you can talk from here to San Francisco. And I said, so you guys ought to just have them as a part of your mission for emergency preparedness. And and I would think that a couple of gel cells, a bit X40, and a chunk of wire and a tuner, you have emergency communications, and you got to really think about that. I know, and not only that, there because there was some, you know, because there was some uh, operator involvement in putting it together. If something does go wrong, people can re it. reach in there and fix it. And a lot of times, yeah, it's a matter yeah, of just, yeah. you know, one of the toys got bent over, unbend it, you know, and yeah, things yeah. like that. So, wow, three cheers for the BitX40 module revolution and our friend by, Ashar. By, by the way. Just as we're talking here, I came up with a solution that guy wanted to remote the IRF 510. Tell okay? Us, tell us. Here's the, here's the solution because <laughs> I used it. You mount the BitX40 on an 8.5 by 10-inch uh, piece of copper PC board, and you put the IRF 510 on the PC board, and you'll have just – maybe a quarter inch more on the leads and put that into the circuit board. So now the base mounting plate is the heat sink. 
Yep. And you'll have 80 square inches, and that's plenty for the IR510 because I got one mounted on that base plate. There you go. That's the way to Solution. do it. Solution. Yeah, you it's go. got to insulate it for the deep from DC because that that tab is yeah is yeah yeah. So well, you get the insulator kit. Yeah, that's yeah, that's cheap. cheap, easy to do. All right, a good solution, Pete. That brings us appropriately enough to bench reports. You <gasps> have been a, you have had a lot of stuff cooking on the N6QW bench out there at the, in the lab at Newberry Park Laboratories. So what? Tell us what have you been working on. Well, actually, I've been working on displays. And uh, I've had some really interesting experience with uh, several types of displays, including uh, color TFT, the bigger ones, the yeah. 240 by 320. And uh, actually, I've had a couple of 240s by 320s uh, in the box in the bin, and I haven't used them because they need a level shifter. You can't operate those off of 5 volts, so you got to have 3.3 volts. And the level shifting, there's lots of ways to do it. And, uh, oh, man, you were talking about... You come up with something and then someone says, yeah, but that, you know, this is a problem. You know, why'd you do that? <laughs> you know, anyway, there's lots of ways to get 3.3 volts. And uh, so you have a lot more real estate. But I also found that the uh, I was using the SPI uh, method of uh, driving the display. Refresh of the display is a little slower. So, I mean, as you tune, the, the, the numbers change, but there's, there's a slight hesitation. So there's, you know, you know, you may have a larger display, but it takes longer to refresh because there's more information that you're refreshing. So that's kind of interesting. Played around with the OLEDs. Oh, I love, uh, the, I love the OLEDs. I like, I like OLED, that little display. OLEDs are so cool. And, and, and they're organic. You know, the OLEDs yeah. were organic. Yeah. I mean, you can. It makes it, just feel, it, it makes it seem wholesome and healthy. Yeah, yeah, really, really kind of cool. So I've been uh, I've been doing that, and then uh, I've discovered something. And you're going to talk a little bit about OLED noise here a little bit later on. But I wanted to show you something, Bill. I've got a uh, I've got a Nano, and I don't know if you can see that, but you'll see that one of the one of the LEDs is flashing. Right. You have one that has a constant, and you have the flashing. Right. And I discovered something that that's what I'm hearing in the receiver. That flashing. Wow. Get rid That's of that flashing thing. Well, yeah, and you're going to talk about decoupling and isolation, but yeah. uh, what was interesting was uh, there was a second lid on here flashing, and uh, I did something a little different on, on the band change. When I did that, that lid went out. Uh-huh. So you didn't you, – you, it was almost like, you know, two, two, two pings. So the noise issue may not be the display – Itself, the noise issue may be in the refresh that's taking place on the Arduino. I got to track that down a little bit more, but I, I was hearing the noise and I was looking at the light and I said, they're the same. Wow. <laughs> they're the same. So, I mean, you may not be able to do anything about the flashing LED, but you, by other means and other um, I was techniques. Thinking about, I was thinking about getting out the soldering iron and taking the thing off the board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, something, something's occurring. To cause that to flash, yeah. and and normally, normally you may see one, but I was seeing two, yeah. so uh, kind kind of interesting. But uh, having a lot of fun. Uh, also had a little fun um, digging out an old friend. I, everybody I loved the old the digging out of the old friend. It was fantastic. Great yeah, KWM four, KWM four, and I, I looked at that thing and I said, I don't know how in the heck I did that. You know, that's just, a beautiful project. 
yeah, it was just pretty complex and and some things that you learn from that that you're you're able to apply to other projects. But it sounds really nice. It looks pretty nice, and uh, I I enjoyed operating it. the The only thing that uh, I can see now that would have been much nicer is if I had not made it a QRP radio. Uh, because on some of the bands, you, you probably need a little more than four or five watts coming out of the thing, and it would have been nicer if uh, it would have been a hundred watt radio. I do have the, uh, I have a module for it that came out of a uh, ten tech transceiver, so maybe the uh, next mod is going to make it a full hundred watt transceiver. I mean, it's it's so nice. It's it's more than a QRP radio. Is, I guess well, you what know what I'm I, what I'm thinking about in that area. Every time I find myself thinking that five watts is not enough, I'd like to have some more power. You know the the uh, IRF 510 run at 24 volts. You know, yeah, that you know that's a nice solution because 20 watts is fine. You know, and big, and, big difference. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, uh, I that that that's definitely something something to think about. And uh, so that's that, that's a nice kind of intermediate solution. But I love those pictures of the KWM4, and it's it was just around that time that I I, I just happened to work a couple of KWM2s on 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 40 meters. And then right around the same time, you were, your article, your post about the KWM4 is out there. People should check it out. It's on Pete's blog, the N6QW blog. Check it out at blogspot.com and you'll get some really interesting pictures about how Pete did it. And I like your picture where you have the KWM4 and then right below it a picture of the KWM2. Yeah. Collins. <laughs> I think yours looks better, Pete. <laughs> do, you, do you see a similarity? I mean, I, there was a little, I worked hard to kind of make it look like it. And the other thing that you don't have with a KWM2 that you have with a KWM4 has a keypad. Yeah. And you can actually tune that radio with two of the buttons, up tune and down tune. No, it's it. It's, you hold a button down, it'll tune it up. Hold a button, to, you know, another button down, it'll tune it down. So beautiful, yeah, beautiful. Try inter- that with your KWM2. <laughs> beautiful <laughs> internal work there too. Really, really yeah. great stuff. Cool. Yeah, and you did you did a simple siever with an OLED. Yeah. You put the OLED in there? Yeah. And I, I get, we gotta get to the OLED in a minute, but I, I guess we'll switch over to my bench and then we'll go back to the OLED here at the end. But I too have been playing with, with old, old radios, older than the, uh, the, the, the older than the KWM4, but around the, the age of the KWM2. I, uh, I got on the air in, on 40, uh, a while back and I worked W1ZB. And he was running an HT37, and so I said, "Hey, I got an nice HT37." Radio. And we nice said, radio. <laughs> "We said, we said, let let's." Let, I told him, "I said, look, I'm going to get mine going properly, but have a little trouble with it. But when I do, we'll, we'll make arrangements to get on the air and go HT37 to HT37." Now, for those who don't know, HT37 is a, a Halicrafters phasing type uh, sideband transmitter uh, built around 1959. The original price was four hundred and fifty dollars. Which was big money in 1959. It's like automobile money. Um, And uh, I still have mine. I got mine from Paper Route Money, 1973-74. It still works. I tried to fire it up this year on straight key night, thinking I was going to make a couple of uh, CW contacts, but it failed me. It failed me. I guess I wasn't giving it enough attention. And it was a simple thing. The, the, The the TR relay wasn't kicking over. I thought it might have been the two, but it was even simpler. The, the relay just needed a shot of deox at D5. And I, I cleaned the contacts and everything went back to work. So I got on the air and worked uh, W1ZB with the HT37. And I think I might have mentioned this also. If you have any of these old rigs around, you know, they're sitting there looking kind of forlorn. 
make sure the light bulbs are working in them. Change the light bulbs because that really perks them up. I mean, aesthetically. And so I put some new light bulbs in the HT37. I think they call it what B40 bulbs. I have them, I have them here. Type no Type 47 bulbs. And most of these old rigs have uh, Type 47 light bulbs in them. And if you just go to Amazon and type in Type 47 light bulbs, they'll sell them to you for next to nothing. You go in there and, and replace it. So I did that on on the DX100, the HQ100, and the HT37. So I'm I'm all lit up with <laughs> the old boat anchors. But that was fun. The other project I want to mention, completely at the opposite, well, almost completely opposite end of the technological and frequency spectrum, Pete. I've been dabbling in VHF. Oh, Beofeng? No. No, 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 no. And I, I don't like it. It's different. It's not what we're used to. Those higher frequencies are weird. They're really weird. And our test gear that we're used to working with often doesn't go up that high. So here I am, very confident with my Rykel 100 megahertz scope and my little uh, FieldTech 24 megahertz uh, frequency generator. Uh-uh, not going up to 100 megahertz. Nope. Anyway, I'll tell you what I did. Is I, I had built this uh, SI5351 kind of a VFO, BFO in a box. You're to blame for this, by the way. Yeah, and I, I built it and I had it there. And then I started thinking about things that I could do with it. And then I, I'm, I've been going through a kind of an NE602 phase, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But then I remembered I have this old Ramsey kit uh, AR1 receiver, aircraft band receiver. And the problem I always had with the AR1 was that it's a single conversion superhead with a 10.7 megahertz IF. And they have the oscillator running. I mean, the airband goes from like 118 to 135 megahertz. And they have the VFO running, you know, 10.7 megahertz above that. And they're running the VFO with a, a little cheap uh, adjustable coil and a couple of caps and a varactor diode right off pin 6 and 7 of the NE602. Wow. That is a that is like a, a, a recipe for instability. Lead length becomes critical. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, lead length. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I and I remember I, I I actually did hear some airplanes with this thing, but it was always really difficult to tune, and it was a mess. And I figured, aha, SI fifty three fifty one. I'll just put it in there. It'll go up into that range. I'll put it in there, and it'll be great. And I'll be able to tune and precise, and I'll have stability and all that stuff. But. Uh, I had some trouble with it. I had trouble getting it in, getting it, getting it in there. And I think it's a lead length problem. I think that when I was building the SI5351 in that old, big old Heathkit QF1Q multiplier box that I, that I killed, that I killed to get the variable capacity. Number. I had the box, so I put it to good use. I just ran a piece of wire from the, you know, RF out to the BNC connector in there. Which is fine, you know, two, three inches of wire at, at 40 meters at low power, not going to be a problem. At 145 megahertz? Eh? I think that might be messing me up. So anyway, I, I just, what, what I've discovered is that if I start working on a project and I'm not liking it and I'm not having fun, I've developed the discipline to stop. Just stop it. You know, don't sit there and drive yourself nuts through the whole weekend trying to get this thing going if you know if, yeah. if, if you're getting a, if you get to around 10 o'clock in the morning and this thing is not fun push it aside there's plenty of fun projects out there you go back to it later on so 
I think I am going to go back to it, but I'm going to first I'm going to go in there and square away the RF leads on the um, on the inside of the BFO QFO VFO BFO in a box, and so and make sure that you know I'm not presenting any kind of weird impedances or resonances that that's preventing that RF energy from getting into pins six and seven of the NE602 in relatively pure form. Aircraft bands a pain too because they don't say anything there. It's always like, you know, four thousand, three thousand. Okay, Roger. Thirty-two right. That's it. You listen to that for a while, but it still should be fun. I've got all kinds of airplanes flying over the house here, and be kind of fun to listen to them. In your code, Bill, did you account for for big numbers? I did. You got to put you got to put an L in there yeah, after to, the number. Long, long. And the, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm learning a little bit about that. By the way, I think. This this is interesting. I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm as I've, I've said many times, I'm not uh, a code writer. I'm not a programmer. I'm not. I know I'm not good at it. I'm probably never will be. But it, it just occurred to me that almost all of the software that we've been dealing with here is based on a Jason NT7S. Is that that right? The call sign. His uh, SI5351 library. And I went and looked at the uh, kind of the the uh, the README file on that library. There's a lot of good information there, and if and I want to go back and spend some time becoming much more familiar with what all those terms in that library, because each one of those library entries is like a chunk of code that saves you time. And so, if you become more familiar with that, you become a more proficient user of of that library, and uh, then I'll have to spend less time bothering you. And Thomas and Tom Hall up there in New York City saying, please, please help me because I can't figure out how line 47 works. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, I guess that's one of my New Year's resolutions for ham radio. Become more proficient at the SI5351 library from NT7S. Well, you know, that just, you know, just listen to you talk here. The 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 technology it's available. I mean, just think the application SI fifty three fifty one on a BitX and now on an airband receiver. And I mean, yeah. you're gonna you're gonna get that resolved. But one box, you change some programming and you can cover the a broad frequency spectrum. Great great time to be a home brewer because lots of technology available. Which leads me to the next thing that I want to mention. It's been on my bench. This has really been my main project since we last spoke. I I got. I, I got an SI5351 going with an Arduino Uno and one of these little OLED screens. Now, the OLED screens, people who haven't seen them, I got a picture of one of them up on the Solder Smoke blog. It's a tiny little display. It's less than one inch by one inch. And you'd think, oh, that's too small. I'm not going to be able to see it. But it's really bright. It doesn't have any kind of uh, brightness adjustment because it's it's just bright. It is. And also, it's I2C, so you only have to run four wires from the Arduino to the display, which simplifies things enormously. So I, I built this little thing, and I got it going, and it was just sitting there, and it was just, it was such a cool piece of technology. I have it, I made up a little, a couple of little, what they call shields, which are just, you know, boards that plug in onto the top of the Arduino. It went together very easily. I got it going. And it was, it was, it sat there for a couple of days and I was almost like crying out for, to, to build something. Put me with in it. something. Put, Put me, me in something. Do something. something. Yeah, yeah. And this is how I think, you know, when you become a, a, a kind of a homebrew fanatic, a lot of the things you build just 
<clears throat> almost start up by spontaneous combustion. You know, there's a bunch of parts sitting there on the bench, and you start tinkering and noodling, and the next thing you know, you got a new receiver, a new transceiver. Anyway, I, I had been thinking about an NE602 rig where, you know, instead of using the the, the BitX uh, bidirectional or, or BitX TIA amplifiers, just put an NE602 at one end of the filter, another NE602 at the other end. One of them is like the first mixer. The other one is the, the BFO. And then take advantage of the, the amplifiers and the mixers that are inside the NE602s. And you would have, with the filter and those two chips, most of the transceiver, you add to it the SI5351, which provides the VFO and the BFO, you're you're 90% of the way there. you got to add an audio amplifier. you got to add a little filter at the front end, yeah. and you're done. So I started doing it, and I, I built this thing, and it's been it's been really, really cool. I call it the SI5351 OLED Whole Food Receiver <laughs> because it's built on a little uh, barbecue plank that I got from Whole Foods, you know, the organic organic display, it, it, it holds it's together. It's all there. It's all thought, there. Pete, I'm going to pause here for a second. I'm going to try to do a little band sweep on 40 to let guys hear this thing. Hold on. Hold on. CW. Boy, it's kind of quiet now, but let's say hello. What our podcast listeners can't see because I'm looking at it is Bill has moved his amazing homebrew microphone <laughs> off of the off of the operating position over to the radio and bill that's uh quite a mic Anyway, not much activity on 40, but um, I'm having a lot of fun with this thing. Hold on, let me get my headphone back on here. Yeah, I, I was going to ask a question, Bill. I'm uh, sorry? When you're, I was going to ask a question because this is really important. Um, you were describing the architecture with the NE602, either end of the crystal filter, you're dumping 
the LO into the front NE602 and the BFO into the back end six, uh, 602. You have an audio and amplifier, and then you have some filter on the front end. Do you have any RF amplification ahead of that? I do. I have a, 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 a 40673 MOSFET right after the, uh, the bandpass filter. And part of the reason for that is that it presents a pretty high impedance to the bandpass filter, which allows it to maintain pretty high Q. And, uh, and also I think it, you'll see, you could, you could see this thing almost as a version of the neophyte receiver where they just went NE602, one single NE602 to an LM386, and that was a real simple receiver that they ran. But we've got some additional losses in here because of the crystal filter. And uh, so I think I need a little bit of additional gain there. So I have I have that one stage of gain there. It doesn't seem to be overloading there anything. I know you have to be real careful with RF gain ahead of the mixer, but I tried it without it, and the, the thing seemed to be kind of gasping for air. It wasn't inhaling very well. So I went with the 40673 MOSFET mixer. I mean, well, the MOSFET I, preamp. Yeah, I was going to say that that's a perfect combination. You you got a good gain distribution. Uh, across the receiver that you're you're not you know when you get when 40 meters is very active you're not going to get overloaded so so that, that's that's really good but that's one thing also i i notice this about 40 and i think it's important for guys to understand i notice here a big variation in signal levels on 40 meters during the course of the day i mean at certain times of the day signals on 40 will all be really really loud and at other times of the day, like I think now, we're getting close to, to kind of midday here, absorption increases, and on 40 meters, signal levels go down. I have actually found myself thinking that there was something wrong with the receiver, because when I was working on it four hours ago, everything was really loud, yeah. and now it's not. And it, this is a kind of variation, I think, that is more pronounced on 40 than it is, say, on 17 meters. Like on 17, signals are always, as long as the band is open, they're always sort of at the same level. But on, when I started working on 40, uh, I, have you noticed that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. You'll you'll hear before 8 o'clock in the morning, signals are pretty strong. Then they'll, they'll sort of, they sort of get weak. And then about uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon to about 6 or 7, they're really strong, really loud. And then you'll hear, uh, you'll hear, Distance stations, not not real loud, but at uh, like eight o'clock at night, you'll hear the Midwest coming through. So yeah, there's a there's a tremendous signal variation. Yeah, let me turn and, this thing off. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with this thing, and at your at your suggestion, I'm going to turn it into a, a transceiver. Yeah. I already put the relays in there. It's uh, I got I got three. Um, Double pole, double throw relays in there. They're going to switch the NE602s around, and it'll it'll work. It'll be fine. It's kind of cool to work on a project like this because it's different. You know, I'm not. I've never really been crazy about chips, but I was kind of getting into a rut with the bit X's. I mean, I'm on my kind of fifth bit X now. Yeah, if you yeah. include the modules, and it's they're great, and each one of them has been a bit different, but it's the same basic architecture. Now this thing is a completely different. Uh, kind of approach to transceive. It's chips instead of, uh, you know, bi-directional amps. I had to confront like impedance matching problems with the, with the crystal filter. Um, and, and there have been other problems that have come up. So I think it is good every once in a while to take on a project that's kind of completely different for you. 
because you do you learn a lot of stuff as you go through it. Yeah, I, I wanted to make a comment, Bill, because uh, something you said and something I ran into, and, and I think it's really uh, it's really interesting. You said uh, a little earlier that you'll just you know you're trying to figure something to do and you'll take a piece of this and a piece of that kind of put it together and you know you experiment with it and optimize it and then you add a few other things and boom you got a any 602 so I, I do the same thing and then maybe I'll post a video or post something in the blog and I immediately get where's the schematic yeah. There is no schematic. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you, you could, they come back and say, well, why isn't there a schematic? I want to build one of those. And I said, because I took this piece and I took that piece and I optimized it. And I said, at this point in time, uh, you know, you, you tend to build a lot of things over and over again. It, 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 the same value, the same circuit values come in. But I mean, I, I get chastised. Well, yeah, well, have, I know, and the, but but why don't you have a board for that? There's you know? no reason for it either. I mean, I, I, a lot of the a lot of the, the the articles in in the ham radio publications, not so much recently, but not too long ago, would start out by saying, "Hey, look, this is just sort of a, a concept article. I'm not going to describe. This is not a, an article intended for you know reproduction, partly because I'm using junk box parts that are no not no longer available." Or, you know, I'm, I'm just experimenting with different techniques. This is just to give you some, some ideas. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I mean, not every, I wouldn't, I would certainly wouldn't kind of put together a schematic and publish it just because I built it. It's a lot of it is experimenting. You know, I haven't really tested it. There may be better ways to do it. You might be able to optimize the filters better. I'm just, you gotta take the first step. You gotta take the first step. Fooling around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I, but, I, uh, I posted uh, on my blog a, a rant about this. You're allowed to do because, that from time to time. You know, pe people ask, well, how did you hook that up? So I, I made a schematic that says, okay, this is how you hook it up. And then I got an email that says, but you didn't tell me how to hook up to the SI5351. I mean, where do I connect? <laughs> and the thought that went through my mind, if you got to ask that question, don't build this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you got to ask that question – I mean, you can see it in the code. You know, it's pretty much standard. The LO is clock zero and the BFO is clock two. This is just kind of a convention people have adapted. But I mean, you want to you want to dabble in this hobby, you got to put some effort for forth. You you got to do some study on your own. Yeah. You got you got to learn a little bit. Put stuff in your computer. You know, I had to do it. Yeah. And you know, it, I, I, no board. There's no board for it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of freestyle freestyle home brewing. Hey, uh, yeah. one thing I wanted to mention with this, uh, my experiments with the OLED here, um, and this comes to a kind of, this, uh, this was, this is kind of an interesting, this is, I think, an example of, uh, kind of going, doing something different and learning something new. Um, you know, when I got the, this whole receiver, when I finally got it going, I, I was real happy with it, but then I started listening to it and you start noticing things. I mean, at first, you're just, pleased excited that, that it's yeah. receiving wow it, and you can you know it, it sounds pretty good but then you become more critical as you listen and i noticed that in the audio there's this kind of high-pitched whine in the background and then it, when as soon as i noticed that it, it started bothering me because it didn't belong there and so i started thinking okay where is this coming from and i had heard about you know a lot of noise generated by all kinds of different displays i've had that problem <laughs> myself in the past 
So it was real easy for me to figure out where it was going because I just reached onto the board. I grabbed that little OLED display and I plucked it off of the shield. And as soon as the display was removed, the receiver continued to operate because the SI5351 was generating the frequency. But the display was out and the, the whine disappeared. The, the sound, the, no, the noise disappeared. So I knew it was coming from the OLED. And you had mentioned to me that, that Farhan had mentioned concerns about noise from the OLED displays. So I was kind of alerted to this. But then I started thinking, all right, I should be able to knock this noise down. I mean, we deal with noise all the time, AC, hum, all kinds of different noise. And usually the solution is more decoupling. You take a look at the uh, the power supply line. You make sure you've got enough capacitance to ground so that if there's any AC, hum, or anything else being picked up by those wires, shunted. they're yeah. shunted to ground, right? The, the, the capacitor presents... You know, a high, it doesn't, doesn't allow the DC to go to ground, but it allows any kind of, you know, AC signal on there to go to ground. And I tried that. I put some additional decoupling in there. No good. Then I wanted to confirm that this noise was coming down the, the line to the, between the power supply on the Arduino, which puts out, you know, five volts regulated and the OLED, which needs five volts regulated. So, I, I said, okay, I did a trick that we use very, very often. You and I both use it. Try with a separate supply, all right? So I got one supply running the whole receiver, and I have another power supply. I set it to 5 volts. I come, and I hook it up, and I have the OLED running off of that 5-volt supply, completely separate. No noise. Noise is gone. The OLED's running. No noise. Now, this is really important because it's, it's, it's proof that the noise is getting into the receiver through that supply line from the OLED. It's not like the OLED itself is just traveling down there. the bus. Right. Yeah. It's not. It's not like the OLED is sort of emitting and having being picked up elsewhere. That's that's the that's the route that this annoying noise is taken. So now it becomes a matter of just cutting that route. Obviously, I can't run around with a separate power supply. You got to get it working off the one power supply. So I I thought okay. Maybe it has something to do with the 5 volts coming off of the uh, the Arduino Uno. So I built a separate 5-volt regulator supply on the board. Using, you know, using the same 12 volts that's coming in, but it's got, you know, it's it's a, a separate 5-volt regulator that's going to run nothing but the OLED. I tried that, the noise is still there. All right, so the noise is coming back down from the OLED, it's getting into that regulator, and then it's getting into the. It's being picked up by the one stage that I know is guilty. It's being picked up by the AF preamplifier stage before the LM386. That's the other way I isolated the source. It went from OLED down the line into that preamplifier stage, which is what you'd expect because that's the stage that is most sensitive to noise in the audio spectrum. It's the first audio stage. Right. It's, so that means all those audio stages, the LM386, everything's going to amplify it there. So if there's any noise there, it's going to be picked up. So, okay, i got to figure out how to break this. And I start studying. And obviously, you know, the typical kind of LC circuit to take it to ground is not going to do it because you, at the, 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 the coil and capacitor values that you'd have to use are enormous. Big. But there's L RC filters. RC filters really interesting. You can come up with uh, a low pass, a low pass RC filter. There's calculators online that'll show you how to set up a low pass resistance capacitive filter, and you could set the frequency cutoff. You could set it at say, you know, uh, 
100 hertz or, or 50 hertz or 3 hertz, 3 hertz low pass filter. So your 200, the 200 hertz signal that's causing you trouble will definitely be out of the pass band. It's going to be knocked down. By the way, I used the Rigol scope to diagnose the problem. I went in there and I was able to take a look at the signal coming down that line and I could see that there was a 200 hertz signal there, which was definitely what I was hearing. So I knew where the problem was in frequency terms. So then I started thinking, man, I can't, I can't do this. I've got the low-pass filter. That's not doing it. I've tried additional decoupling. That's not doing it. And then I remembered a little circuit that I had seen in an article by Roger Hayward. Roger had written an article called The Receiver for the Ugly Weekender. And in it, he had, in feeding the, the first audio amplifier, Three parts, a, a 2N3904, uh, a 47K capacitor, and a 10 microfarad cap. Those three parts were an, what, they, what he called an active decoupler. I think Roy Llewellyn, W7EL, was the first one to use it, and he used this circuit in the optimized QRP transceiver, the famous little transceiver that came out, in, I think, in 1980. Um, and Rick Campbell also used the same kind of circuit in the audio amplifiers for his R2 phasing receiver. So these three guys have all used them. And I said, okay, I'm going to try it. So I went, I got the three parts, I built it, boom, audio, the problem's gone. It is a really interesting little circuit. You know, it's just three parts. But I started thinking, how does that work? What's going on here? It's kind of a complicated story. Sometimes little simple circuits can operate in a complicated manner. It's I, a DC switch. That's well, what it is. It is, yeah, but it's a DC switch. But how that how it eliminates? It's a switch when you turn it on. But why why is it that the noise that's on the collector is not making it to the emitter? Why? And it's it's an interesting story. I found a link that explains it real well. We don't really have the time to go into it here, but it's 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 really interesting. It's like like you say, it's a DC switch. That's the transistor, and that coil and the cap are in effect an RC low-pass filter feeding the base. And you take the two components together, they used to call it a capacitive multiplier, which sort of explains what's going on. It, and it, apparently it used to be quite common in tube rigs, a similar circuit in tube rigs. But um, I think Michael Black came in and explained that on, on, on a post to a comment to one of the, uh, the posts I put up. But I have a link with it. I, found, I finally found a good site that explains the physics and the electronics of how this thing works. But it's it's really, really cool, and it was very satisfying, a very satisfying repair to get rid of that noise. And now it doesn't buzz. But I guess uh, the thought that goes through my mind is you're going to need to do that in a couple places. You're going to need to do that, uh, first of on the receive part. But if you got that in the transceiver, you're probably going to have to do that in the audio amplifier stage the mic amp. The mic amp. Mic yeah. amp. Yeah. So you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to do it twice. Another, I got space for another one. I'm using the board that you sent me. One of those boards with the great. You need little, another board. No, you no. Need <laughs> I got enough space on there. I'll, yeah, I got. It's I only, got stock. It's only three parts. <laughs> I'll, I'll build another one. The other interesting thing is that on a lot of these NE602, well, there's not a lot of them, but there's there's one kind of classic NE602 sideband transceiver out there, uh, and he doesn't even use a mic amp. He just runs the Electret mic right into the, the input of the NE602, and that's enough. So I might, I might have to do that for the power supply on the NE602, uh, on the, on the Electret mic. 
but it's simple. It's easy. So I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll give it a try. Yeah, just, just, you know, you cured one. If, if it's going to show up there, it's going to show up uh, on the other end. Yeah. Hey, uh, this, this brings us to something. I, you know, when I was trying, go ahead. Shameless Commerce Division. Oh, the Shameless Commerce Division. Uh, shameless Commerce Division. All right, yeah, the Shameless Commerce Division, the best way that you can support the Sonic Smoke podcast and blog, which I know you want to do. doesn't cost you anything. Just every time you go to Amazon, every time you feel the need to buy something from Amazon and Bezos, and they're selling everything now. They're selling breakfast cereal, you know, delivered by drone. You just go and go to the Solder Smoke blogspot.blogspot.com page. In the upper right, there's a little box for Amazon. You plug in breakfast cereal or any 602 or SC5351, anything you want in there. The more expensive, the better, by the way, because we get a percentage on it. Bezos Buy your and company, Tesla through Amazon. <laughs> Tesla Model S, you know, get it, yeah. get it whatever you want, you know, a really expensive Spectrum Analyzer or that that in audio that audio gear for enhanced SSB, you know, the mixing board, right? All that stuff. You plug it in there, and then the rest of the purchase is exactly the same. You don't have to do anything else. As long as you start on the page, cha-ching, we get some money, okay? We now return you to our regular programming. Okay, I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be criticized. I didn't fa- fail to mention yeah, it to you, you. You have your duties in this show, and, and you perform them quite well. Thank you. Um, you know, but when I was trying to figure out how this little active uh, uh, decoupler works, I found myself reaching for LT Spice, and I know you do the same thing sometimes. It's a really cool diagnostic tool. It's a tool also if you're trying to figure out how does the circuit work. And so I just built one of these little things, the three parts. I put it on LT Spice, and I started just fooling around, sort of LT Spice noodling I was doing. And I started, I tried to isolate the, the kind of the role of the transistor from the role of the RC filter, and I was able to separate them out. It's kind of hard to describe. But LT Spice is really good for that kind of thing. And I know that you've been using it recently as a diagnostic tool, too. What were, what were you doing with it? Uh, bandpass filters. Uh, bandpass filters, how to, yeah. How, how to optimize bandpass filters, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it, important. Very useful there. Elsie is also good on the bandpass filters. I like Elsie. Elsie's good because what they'll, what they'll do is they'll tell you what the, the loss is, what kind of loss you're dealing with. And sometimes you're dealing with pretty significant loss if you don't have it set up right. So... Three cheers for LC and LT Spice. Waterfalls. Let's talk about waterfalls. I had I had another encounter with the forty what? meter waterfall. SDR police. police? At the SDR water police. SDR police. Yeah. Yeah. I got on. I don't want. I don't want to do all this. I don't want to rant. I don't want to. I don't want to get, get get grouchy here. But I was on forty. I was life was good. Everybody was was. We were talking about my signal. Short skip was good. I was going into the New York area. I was really, really strong. And guys kept calling me saying, wow, you're strong. The signal sounds great. What are you running? And I would tell them the homebrew rig. And when you say homebrew rig, there's a certain number of people out there who don't like it. They feel they feel challenged. They feel threatened. threatened. They feel lessened by the fact that they are not running the homebrew rig and you are. So they, they it's, it's, a, it's very transparent. There seems to be a desire, a special desire. I mean, if you said, oh, I'm running a Yesu 1000 TXQ with, with a 4750P53 voice multiplier, that'd be fine. But when you say it's a homebrew rig, man, you could almost, you almost, you could almost hear the magnifying glasses coming out of the drawer and focusing. I see on a little it. energy below 300 hertz. Right, I see something there. But anyway, some guy chimed in and says, yeah, 
It's it's home brew and it's loud, but it's nine KCs wide. No call sign, of course. No. And not only that, he sounded like he was so close. He sounded like he was a real local. So anyway, I just, I, I just, you, you know, you just sometimes you just despair, and you, because what's going on a lot of times is they think their their waterfall is an accurate, always an accurate description of what's actually going on there. In other words, if it appears in their waterfall and it looks wider than the other signals, then there must be something wrong with it. But they 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 ignore the fact that their own receive system and the signal strength is an important factor. Now, I found a great description of all this from a guy who really knows what he's talking about, W8JI. And he has a great little one-page description of how people can be deceived by the SDR waterfalls. And there's all kinds of things that could be kicking in. One, signal strength. You know, like These guys all kind of try to claim that their, their receiver filters are brick wall completely vertical but it's not true they've got skirts too not only that i'm using a filter i'm using filters in my transmitter they have skirts too so if my signal at the receive point is 60 db over s9 yeah it's going to be wider because it's stronger now also if the guy at the receive end has his all of his preamp settings up 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 it's quite possible that my strong signal is overloading his receiver or noise blanker. If you've got the noise blanker in there, the noise blanker is another factor. And WHAI describes this very well. Also, he makes some very critical comments about the IMD performance of some of these more popular uh, appliance-type receivers. So take a look at the WHAI side. I have it up on the uh, the, the blog spot, uh, on the Solder Smoke blog. Lexicon. Lex, it's time for Lex. I have a word I want to add. Go ahead. Tape wired. Tape. Yeah, you made that one up. I, that was that's a variation of haywired. Yeah, tape wired. Yeah. Okay. I think we should start with haywired. You when you were presenting, I think your OLED um, simple siever. Simple siever. Yeah. You used the. It was really in sort of the word that we you supplied last time. Al fresco. Yeah. Yeah. All out there on the bench. Al fresco. And I haywired in. The OLED, yeah, the right. SI50, haywired. Haywired is yeah. like when the whole thing—it looks like some weird contraption, especially if yeah. you're using those alligator alligator leads and everything else. You know, yeah, we were making yeah. fun of the poor guy with the uh, yeah. with the remote yeah, 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 IRF510, yeah. but we do a lot of this yeah. ourselves. So here we go. Yeah. So when it's haywired, and then then when you have to try to keep everything under control, and you reach for a roll of tape and you tape masking the wires, tape. masking tape, you tape it down onto the bench, then it's tape wired. Tape wired, yeah. So right. I said, yeah, I tape wired it. <laughs> you came up with another one, I, and I I can't remember for the life of me who gave us this one, but um, Tombstone. That's when you're working on an SM uh, a surface mount uh, rig, and you want to get a test point, and you reach in with your soldering iron, and you tilt that little little component up, so it's out of the circuit, but it's standing up there like a tombstone, and it gives you a test point. It's called tombstoning. Oh yeah. The other one. Yeah, I um, didn't think of that. that yeah, that'll work. That'll yeah. work. Yeah, I, I don't know who gave us. Please let us know who used that. It might have been Hans Summers. Um, bike sledding. Bike shedding. Bike shedding. Bike shedding. And this was provided to us by uh, by Todd K Seven TFC, and I think it was from Jim Williams, the the famous analog designer. 
he, you'll get a kick out of this, Pete, because I know you were involved in big project development when you were in the workforce. Um, and it's like he describes a meeting where there's some really serious, detailed engineering problems that have to be addressed, but they're hard. They're difficult. So they call everybody together. They have the meeting and they don't, they don't, nobody could really confront the problem. So they start discussing and spending lots and lots of time on really ancillary problems that don't have anything to do with it. Like, where are we going to put the bikes, bike shed? Yeah. And the whole oh, how meeting, many bikes can we put in the bike shed? Yeah. <laughs> What's this? Well, big, how tall should the bike shed be? Bike shedding. There's a lot of bike shedding going on. Right now, watching it, you you know, kind of a corollary to that, and and it's a technique I used to use back back when I worked. I I was involved in an executive position with one of the aerospace companies, and lots lots of times you had people that wanted to do things, and and it just didn't make much sense, but they were very vocal. So immediately I'd say, okay, let's call a meeting. So we'd have this meeting with all these people, and I'd say, you know, we need to study this problem a little bit more. <laughs> so another another two weeks would go by, you know. Meanwhile, you do all the things you need to do, and when the next two weeks come up, the problem is solved, you know. But great, great technique. Call a meeting, you know, and that that's the way you can delay action. Call a meeting. Bike shedding. Bike shedding. Hey, I want to point out that our friend Eric, 4Z1UG, over there in the QSO Today podcast in Israel, has done some really great interviews lately. He had uh, Ian, G3ROO. I, I got to visit Ian's shack. Tony Fishpool took me out there when I was in the UK. What a, what a fantastic guy, a fantastic location. And Ian just tells so many great stories. And he just, in a very kind of nonchalant, non-bragging English way, just throws out that he built his first regen receiver at age eight. Eight. You had some great pictures on the blog when you were visiting with the oh, uh, great pictures. Terrific. He also tells the story. I didn't know this about how he picked. He got to pick the call sign G3ROO, RU. It was because during the Second World War, the Australians sent the English kids kind of care packages, and they always had a kangaroo on the, on the, on the cover. And so when he got to pick his call sign, the lady said, you could, you're, you'll be a G3 and it's got to be in the R's. He saw that R was available, and so he became G3ROO. And this is, by the way, also the origin of the company that we all know so well, Kanga. Kanga yeah. Parts, Kanga US, Kanga UK. Yeah, he started Kangaroo. that. Yeah. Oh, man. A great interview with Han Summers, G0UPL. And so much good stuff in there. In the end, they talk about the balloon project that, 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 that Hans has been in there. But I also like how he, he points out that he has no commercial ham gear in the shack. Something that we should all aspire to. Uh, one recent, oh, and then they had Bob Sherwood on there, NC0B, and we've talked about Sherwood's uh, evaluation of receivers, that fantastic chart there that looks at all the parameters. We discussed this a lot when we were talking about phase noise, but Bob goes in there and he, and he, he talks a lot about the, how he developed a lot of the standards that we use to evaluate receivers, especially in the IMD area, and how he, he got ARRL labs to change the, the parameters for kind of close-in interference. He talked about how CW signals, and especially during a contents period, can have a, a real kind of nasty effect on receiver performance. But it made me think about a lot of things, and uh, a really good interview. And then one, this one kind of surprised me, because I didn't think I would be that interested in it, but it really got me thinking. 
Uh, the most recent one, not this Saturday, but Saturday before, was with David White, WN5Y. And David is a really interesting guy. He's the guy who built the electroluminescent receiver. Have you seen this thing? No. All right. I, I see it. It's really eye-catching. I didn't pay enough attention to it when I first saw it. He's got it in a, in a translucent box. And all through the circuitry, he's got LEDs. I know you like LEDs. You were just talking about them. When I first looked at it, it looked like, okay, he's got a super hat, and he's got a bunch of LEDs in there, and it's sort of like, okay, to make it look sparkly or something. It didn't, it didn't really dawn on me why he was doing this. And in the interview with Eric, he explained it, and it's really ingenious. Now listen to this. I'll, I'll kind of try to paraphrase it. It all started when he was working on an AGC circuit using a 40673 MOSFET. The problem was, actually he was working off something that, that Wes Hayward was working on. The problem was to get the AGC working right on the gate, they needed it to go negative, right? But, but, but Wes solved the problem by putting an LED in the drain circuit of the 40673, and this allowed the AGC circuit to operate with just positive voltage going from zero up. It didn't, it didn't require going down, which simplified the gate circuit a lot. So, um, David White, WN5Y, built this thing, and when he, when he used it, he realized that by watching the, the, the level of the LED, he was getting a real good indication of the performance of the stage. So he said, wait a second, and this was, I think, the moment of genius. In all of the 40673 stages that he put in the receiver, he included an LED in the drain circuit, and th these LEDs then became what he calls like almost miniature oscilloscopes. Not quite, but he could tell just at a glance whether the stage was operating properly because all the LEDs need to be operate, need to be coming along at like kind of uh, not full bright, not full off. If they were full off, something was wrong. If they were full bright, something was wrong. But if they were in the mid-range, they were okay. And also some of them would flicker as the signals were coming through. So you got a very pleasing visual effect, but it also was a, an excellent sort of at a glance kind of test gear thing. Now, I thought about doing this. When I was building my first bit X, you know, Farhan has the diodes in there when you're switching from T to R. And I briefly thought, wouldn't it be cool just to use LEDs instead of ordinary diodes? People have talked me out of it. And I don't think it would serve this function. It would have just, you know, it would have oh. told you if it was telling you it was R or T, but you already knew well, that. But what it, David's doing is different because it's a real diagnostic tool. Um. If you go to the JES Systems website and you look at the 2009 Triban transceiver, the one yeah. that uses the Heathkit filter in that, look in the video. There's a video in there. You look in the video. I have I have two LEDs in the source, not in the drain, and you can watch the AGC action take that place. Cool. That is cool. You can watch the AGC on, on both those stages, and the same thing on the KWM4. So, yeah, it's – and that's how I set the AGC. If it, if I start to hear signals, I'll, I'll, I'll crank the AGC to the point that those LEDs start to flicker. Then I know I got AGC action. So, yeah, it is a miniature oscilloscope. You don't have to put a voltmeter in there. Just watch the LEDs. This could be my next project. Thank you, David White, and thank you, Eric Four Z One GGG. Very, very cool. Check out, check out the podcast. It's really, really interesting. Pete, that brings us to Solder Smoke Mailbag. Lots of mail. Lots of mail. Uh, Chris, KD4, PBJ, uh, uh, built a Bidex, put it in a beautiful box. Chris is a great guy. Beautiful. 
It really nice, got a Beautiful nice job. display on there and worked on stabilizing that Varactor VFO. He did not throw in the towel. He did not go completely over to the dark side. Well, you know what crossed my mind? He's got, he's actually got a fluorescent display. Yeah, I he's think. got, yeah, he's got, no, he's got a glowing numeral display, but it's just well, one of yeah, those, uh, I'm sentient saying, things. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're 50 percent. You're 50 percent there. Do the other half. <laughs> anyway, Chris, Chris is the guy who sent me all the heat sinks that I've been using, and, and uh, th- thanks for that. And good to hear from you, Chris. Jerry W zero PWE built. Uh, he built his version of a Digitia. He he's the first one, the only one I've seen other than myself, who has built the a, a Bidex, but using termination insensitive amps or Tia or Zia amps, as we would like to call them, in there all the way through, and he did it with surface mount. And he sent us a picture of the whole thing in operation al fresco. Got it up on the blog. Check it out. I got Chris's rig up on the blog, too. Mike, AB1YK, another al fresco uh, scratch-built Bidex. Beautiful job. He has it on, on a plank, and it's got it all along. You can see each of the stages. You can see the thought process in there. It's great because I don't think Mike is a real experienced home brewer, but he did a beautiful job on this rig. He he used that pad cutter. The pad cutter, yeah. Pad cutter. He made made all the little pads and, and did a really nice and, job. And on really that. little small boards, each one stage, got yeah. everything soldered together there and got the whole thing working and is making contacts with it. My only complaint, of course, threw in the tell too quick on the VFO. Went over to your dark side. Went digital too quick. I say, Mike, please go back. Give that VFO a chance. It can be done. He sent a picture of the VFO. The thing, the poor thing, never stood a chance, Pete. The the coil was like floating in space. The the the, the cap was remoted. Oh man, nail that thing down. Get some gorilla glue. Get some tape and screws and hardware and build that thing like Doug Demar wanted you to build it. And build the SI fifty three fifty one. All right. Well, speaking of which, Steve N8NM, our friend oh, Steve. Oh yeah, yeah. He there found at a ham fest an LC VFO. Here, this, 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 this. I'm going to get my revenge here. <laughs> and it was a beautiful thing. It was beautiful. It was it was built like I don't know. It was it was built like a battleship. It had a big big uh, national knob on it. It was marked. And everything. You you correctly spotted it as a piece of of bootleg CB gear. Right, some C beer had come up with this thing so that you could go between the channels or something like that, or whatever they did. But anyway, it was a really nice LC VFO, and Steve was thinking about turning it over to his grandkids for as a plaything or something. And I said, no, 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 keep it. Turn it into a legitimate piece of amateur radio gear. Incorporate it into a rig. You know, save some piece of equipment from digitization. And he did it. He did it. He built a 30 meter rig. It's really cool, and he got this thing going, and he's using it as the uh, the oscillator for this rig. And he he Pete he has commented many times to me on the remarkable stability and signal purity of this LC VFO. You see, it can be done. Well, okay, okay, <laughs> you can do it, and and I've done it. As a matter of fact. If uh, our podcast listeners would like to see an example of an LC VFO. Uh, they need to go to YouTube and do a search on Wooden Box Radio from N6QW. And there it's got a national velvet vernier dial on it, and you can see it's pretty stable. And it is pretty stable. 
but it took a lot of effort to get there. I mean, with the SI-5351, I plug it in the board, do a few wires, and I'm there. I think, I think it was either Steve or it might have been Keith N6ORS who wrote to me. I don't know if you know about this, but they, they, they said, look, I understand Pete's affinity for the digital VFO. It comes from his years as a professional engineer and his desire to use the most efficient, get it done, move on kind of solution. There you go. There you go. I may be, I may be, I'm definitely not in the professional category here. So this may account for my kind of, well, kind of new age, kind of hippie-ish no, affinity no. for and, coils and capacitors. No, I, I think what it is, Bill, is it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to make a VFO, but when you're up to the challenge, you can produce a high-quality, stable BFO. There's no question about that. I, you know, I heard another a tip. I just want to mention this. I know we're in overtime, but we're having so much fun, so what the heck. Um, a guy from India, and I don't have his call sign, but in the BidX20 group, he was talking about another rule of thumb for stable VFOs. And we had, we've been discussing what Lou McCoy said, but this is something I hadn't heard. He said you should go with, I think it was, oh, I, hope, I hope I don't get this backwards, um, smaller, more L and less, or more C and less L. You know, lower inductor values and higher capacitor values. You know, because you get that trade-off, you could, you could pick. Uh, LC ratio. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he, and, and, uh, gosh, I, I hope I don't get it backwards. I'll put something on the blog about this rule. Well, just think about it a minute. If you take take a bigger L, but you segment it up into small little pieces, yeah. you have more control over what's going to happen with drift and heating than you yeah. do with a single inductor. Right, 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 right. So, I, yeah. You know, especially I, if it's monoband, if you have a choice between you, going yeah. with, you know, 10 microhenries or 3 microhenries, Go with the three microhenries. Yeah, I think so. And a lot, of, a lot of good rules of thumb there. Um, let's see what else. Oh yeah, Keith N6ORS has built a Franken SDR rig using parts that were originally produced during the Reagan administration, 1980s. Yeah, and it's really pretty cool. I got a picture of it up on the blog. He uses a Talo uh, detector, and he's got this kind of weird, kind of old style, you know manual frequency determination it does look like the franken sdr rig and then he runs it and he gets he sends the i and the q to the um, to the software he gets the waterfall display and it's it really interesting take a look at that we got a picture of that on the bra on the blog our old friend mike wa6ara sent in a report on straight key night which brings us back it seems like a long time ago but straight key night was there and uh Mike was on the air with his DX60 station. He sends us a band scan. I have that up on the uh, on the on the blog, and uh, it reminded me that I actually made two contacts before the HT37's relays quit on me, and one of them was with a really famous uh, QRP guy, Jim W1PID, who has been in cahoots, cahoots I say, with Michael Rainey. Uh, oh yeah, AA1TJ. Yeah, in, in many of his most adventurous uh, QRP adventures, including the uh, the great effort to span the Pacific, not the Pacific, span the Atlantic Ocean with a voice-powered transmitter. They all went off to the coast of Maine, set up a big antenna, and and Jim was involved in that. Jim has been on the receiving end of many of Michael's most uh, exotic, bizarre, and most QRPPPPP projects. So it was great to run into to Jim on, on straight key night. And I got one last, you know, he's been sending us mail, 
and I, I couldn't find them when I looked this morning. What has our friend Michele in Croatia been up to? He's been building stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got to be careful. He's trying to find an FPM 300 board. <laughs> he wants to build the FPM 5, but he's built a simple siever. Uh, I mean, just every time I turn around, he's got something. He's got quite a few videos, and, and I'm, I'm amazed. Now, the thing that's neat about Michele is he's got some nice test gear. I mean, that's he got a spectrum analyzer, and you know, when you have a problem, he just puts the test gear, and that's what he does for a living, by the way. He uh, he works for the police department, but he does all the maintenance on on their ah, okay. all the radio systems. So, I mean, he he takes his day job. <laughs> at all well, good with for him. I mean, and the yeah. and the one thing McKelly has really got is a is an amazing level of enthusiasm. He just, I mean, it, it comes across in every video. I mean. He, he, he he really loves this stuff. So three cheers for Michele. You know what I find fa- fa- fascinating? He lives in Croatia. Yeah. But if you hear him talk, he speaks impeccable Italian. No, his Italian is well, quite cro- good. Yeah. Try cro- to, Croatia well, is real close right, right to across Italy. the water. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah that's part so, of it. I mean, part of it used to be used to be in Italy. That's yeah, right on the border. Yes. Right there, yeah. So you can you can uh, you can, I listen to him. And I, I'd say he's Italian. He's not oh, Croatian. He's, he's yeah. really good. And you'll hear him on. He'll he'll present clips of his contacts with the with the Italian hams. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. Oh, man, Pete, almost forgot something. we got to mention this. Danny ZS6XOX writes in from Johannesburg, South Africa, and he reports that they are playing the Sutter Smoke podcast on their local repeater via All-Star. <clears throat> We'd like to say hello to everyone who's listening in in Johannesburg and Boxburg, Benoni and Brackpan. And a special thanks to Henry, ZS6IIX, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, Leon, ZS6LMG, and John, ZS6DMG, who are the guys who maintain the repeater and have provided us with this opportunity. Really great. Also, Danny reports that there is a repeater in Kyrgyzstan that is linking in to his link via Echolink and All-Star whenever solder smoke comes up. So we're going to give a special shout-out to anybody who's listening via the local repeater in Kyrgyzstan. That's just fantastic. And guys, this reminds me, if you'd like to put the Solder Smoke podcast on your repeater, let me know, and I can provide you with a version that is that has the music and any commercial stuff stripped out, and that would help meet the requirements of the, the FCC here in the States and, and of other communication authorities that might object to uh, music and commercial stuff. So let me know. But I think it's really cool. Rockin' Johannesburg. Thanks very much for that, Danny. And and a shout-out to everybody in Johannesburg and Kyrgyzstan. Well, yeah. I had a lot of fun. I hope you did, too. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I hope yeah, our, re- cool. our listeners get something out of this. Keep melting <laughs> solder. Keep those BIDX-40s going. Keep the revolution, the BIDX-40 module res- revolution going worldwide. I-, I wanted to make one... Final, kind of final comment about the BIDX. I, I'm impressed at the number of guys who don't buy the BIDX 40 kit and scratch build one. I mean, really scratch build one. You, you mentioned three people and you had them up on the blog. Scratch built it, took it. So that tells you something. And something else I wanted to share with you is when I built my first BIDX 20, when I, right after the project first came out, I put sockets in, in the board. And I ran all kind of transistors in there. That design is so robust. You can put literally any 
NPN transistor in there, it'll work. I even put two N706s in the one circuit I found that, that didn't like the two N706 was the carrier oscillator because the junction capacitance was such it wouldn't, it wouldn't oscillate you know, reliably. But you run two N22s, 22s, two N3904, BC458. I, I just, the mic amp, out, the, the mic amp too. You got to be a little bit careful with the mic yeah. amp. Yeah. But I mean, that's got to tell tell you something about how robust that design is. Feedback amps. And, and, yeah, FDA. and the, and the, the other side of it is people are able to scratch build this thing without a board and be successful. And some of them are not very very experienced. I mean, yeah, they can they know what end of the soldering iron to grab. But I mean, taking on that project is something more than one transistor radio. So no, excellent point. And and things that another thing people can do is that when you when you get that bit X forty module going. And you're comfortable with it and you're confident with it and you've learned from it. There's no reason why then you can't go and do a scratch belt one on your own. It's like another next step. The great thing also, and I mentioned this before, I love, a, there's so many things I like about the BitX40 module, but there are subtle things in there that, that are important that you might miss when you first look at it. Take a look at the schematic and then take a look at the parts layout on the board. They're almost identical. In other words, when you look at the way he's got it arranged on the schematic on the piece of paper, and then the way the parts are laid out on the board, they're almost identical. So it's it's just crying out for to help you understand how the thing works, which is I think a huge part of it. What what I would really like to see is, and I think you talked about this, is if you had some functionality since you had a lot of plug-in pins, is that you could p- plug in bandpass uh, filters and low-pass filters in there with some sort of a module. There was you no, know, you, know, you could you could do it, and there's a guy in Germany who's talking about doing that on the BX20. I mean, then then you have the functionality with the SI5351. You can put, put any, on band any band you want, you want. You want and yeah. just you, you got these little modules, and you're yeah. on another band. That's you know? it. No, and so and that's the idea. You, there's no need to wait for Farhan to do that. Do it yourself, and you know, put it do it that way, and you know, it's really easy to to swap out the the low pass and the band pass filters, and like you said, with the SI5351, the phrase we use, Bob's your uncle. Yeah, Bob's your uncle. You got <laughs> <You're> it. Done. <laughs> you bet. Hey, Pete. And I, I think we're done. I think we're Are done. We done? <laughs> okay. I wanted to say 73s from the left coast where we actually had some sun yesterday, but it was still cool. You managed to take your gloves off there, so it must be warming up there. Yeah, well, I wanted, to, I wanted to really see if I could, <laughs> I could operate <laughs> the computer with the gloves on. Hey, yeah, Pete, you can. Thanks for getting up really early for us. And, uh, you really, bet. Really you bet. Thanks I very much. You. And 73s to everybody from northern Virginia. 73s from the left coast. Ciao. Ciao. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported. And there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. 
Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!